In the limited justice system, the data is viewed by two separate yet equally important groups, the data scientists who investigate its merits and the podcasters who prosecute the offenders. These are their stories. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a bonus episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line, as always, is Ethan Sachs, as well as another special guest. We've got Carl, aka Two Duck Cubed, joining us, who has been, you know, doing a bevy of magic content, has recently been number one on the MTGA Limited leaderboard, as well as is a data scientist by day. So, Carl, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, excited to be here and, and really looking forward to the, the episode. Okay, so as the title tells you folks, we're putting data on trial here. There is, uh, there's no two ways about it. And I think, you know, for folks who watch our streams, know that, that Ben and I, I'd say push back against the the data trend quite a bit uh, is perhaps putting it mildly. And we really wanted to take the opportunity to get someone who is like entrenched in this field, um, an expert in this field, and 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 get to have a, a real toe-to-toe conversation with them. So Carl has graciously donated his time and expertise to join us on the show, and we're really excited to have him. Carl, for folks who are not familiar with you and your content, can you please let folks know a little bit about your life and your life with magic? Yeah, I've been I've been playing Magic. So I, I played originally when I was uh, very young in in fifth grade, and then took a long break. I started playing again in Time Spiral Block, you know, and, and MTGO, and pretty much just fell in love with Limited out of the gate. Uh, I drafted the Time Spiral Block and, and had a blast starting up again, and that was in college for me. And, and really have fallen in love with with draft ever since. Been you know, playing pretty steadily breaks here and there, but especially since MTG Arena has come out, uh, really delved back into playing draft pretty frequently. With now having data available to look at while you're drafting, to absorb while you're drafting, to pair with the drafting experience, as as you can probably tell, that is very much up my alley, which has only increased my my love of limited even more. And so that I love to I'm you know, excited to talk about the here with you you guys in the podcast um, you know I think that it's been a big part of some of the recent success that I've had uh, as as Ben mentioned I was number one limited mythic in the March season and, and I think a lot of that had to do with being able to absorb and process the data and adjust my play style as a result um, and then uh, you know more recently I, I put some content out into Twitter. First was with that call time right around the time that I was number one there in March, just around how to think about the data, interpret the data and, you know, done a couple of big Twitter threads on that. And then a lot of just quick hitters on data here and there, you know, mostly with the goal of helping people process the information that they're seeing on 17 lands and how to think through it, I would say is my main goal with that. Awesome. Well, we're super excited to have you here. So before we dive into our uh, our little trial here, we wanted to throw out a disclaimer. I mean, just despite how Ben and I may feel about data, we are and have, have been from its inception, huge fans of the work that 17lands.com does. Everyone who's, whenever I do deck techs, I'm always like, do you have 17lands.com installed when I do these deck techs on my stream? And when people are like, no, I'm like, why not? You should. Everyone who plays on Arena should have 17 lands installed. It's just an insanely helpful tool for you to track your drafts and your your decks and your record and all that good stuff. It's it's a fantastic tool. We're huge fans of it. 
Yeah, huge fans of it. And actually, you know, if you're in the Lords of Limited Discord, you know, we didn't create 17 lands by any stretch of the imagination, but it did originate. I think the people that started 17 lands connected through our Discord. You know, there was a lot of talk about wanting a data analysis thread in our Discord, and we made that channel. And you can go back up if you want to see the origins of 17 lands, you know, with Viral Misnomer and some of the other folks that do work on that. You can read at the top of the data analysis channel, you know, okay, we've got 24 users, like here's the data we could generate, you know, if we can get 50 users, we can generate more useful data, whatever, that sort of stuff. So, you know, in a way, it's interesting that like, you know, it spawned (laughs) out of our discord and then it's also a little bit the bane of our existence as streamers now with everyone, you know, wanting to cite data as arguments for, you know, why to pick this card or that card and that sort of thing. So if that's up your alley um, and you're in the Lords of Limited Discord and you want to check that out, it's in the data analysis channel. Take a trip down memory lane and and see the Frankenstein's monster, as it were. No, but uh, <laughs> but so so here's here's where I want to start with the discussion, and then I'll, I'll let Ben throw out his first point here. But so my frustrations with the rise of data is that the, the biggest argument for me is that and I've said this before on on stream and on the podcast. I, I think that drafting is an art, not a science. I think draft is about going with the flow, reading signals cooking versus following a recipe, whatever, you know, analogy you want to use. And I feel like focusing on stats about particular cards is counterintuitive to that, right? Like you can see stuff in a vacuum, but then, you know, it's really more about case by case basis. That's one of the reasons that draft is so incredible is that no two drafts are alike and everything is always different. And you sort of have to be, you know, cooking on the fly or whatever. And I think our goal for, for, for me and Ben is as content creators is to get people better at limited. And I often feel like citing whatever game in hand win rates or, or other data gleaned from the community at large has the potential to stunt that growth. Can I get an amen? So ben, honestly, what ben you is just really fired up. up. I am so it fired is, up. It's 9.50 p.m. and Ben is hot to trot. Ben, take it away. I'm hot. I'm sweaty. I just got home from marching band <laughs> rehearsal. I haven't showered. I'm ready to go. So just that big point. What would you say about drafting as art and not science, Carl? Actually, I don't disagree with your point that drafting is art. I think that there is no such thing as the same draft, which really is the beauty of the draft format, right? You're just never doing the same thing two times in a row. Even if you draft somewhat similar decks, they're always going to have their flavors to them. The opponent is always going to have different things. You're going to have different games. There's, there's no such thing as the same experience twice, which I think as limited fans is one of the things that we love about it. I think my big point here is that the science doesn't need to take away from the art side of it. I think the science can supplement the art side of it. And, and we can get into that a little bit more as we, we go along. For sure. So let me fire my first bullet at you. So one of the things that happens as a streamer, I think to both Ethan and I, is one of the most common ways I engage through data because I don't often look at the data on 17 lands myself. And by not often, I mean like have done it maybe twice in my life and then got overwhelmed and just went back to drafting because that's rather what I would be doing. Um, so it's through Twitch chat and people come in and they pop into Twitch chat and they say, you know, like X card has a 54% games in hand win rate. You should pick it here or something along those lines. And I just, my, my immediate reaction to that is how is that useful information? Cause I really just don't see it. So I think that using the game in hand win rate, I, this is the one that I, I find the community uh, goes to first. And if you're trying to boil the data down to maybe the one most useful data point that's available to you. Game in hand win rate, it's a pretty good data point. You know, you could take a strategy where you blindly just looked at game in hand win rate and just picked cards according to game in hand win rate. And and if you're maybe an average drafter or you're still learning the game, 
Could you see some benefit out of that? You might. But on the other hand, you're really going to limit your ceiling as to, first of all, how good of a drafter you can get because you're just trying to follow a script, essentially. And you're also going to limit yourself into what you can learn from what's available in the data itself. And, and so I think if when people are just coming in and blasting game in hand win rate is this, you have to take that, you're missing so much of what is available within the data, right? It, the the game in hand win rate, it's an aggregated data number. It is one number that is telling you about what is nearly an infinite number of situations. That number in any given situation it can vary by archetype. It can vary by what other cards it's being played with, right? Like, so price of loyalty is going to be real good with a bunch of sack outlets and not very good if you don't have them. It can vary by player skill. One of the things that we found when we dug into call time data was that Alrund um, and Haka, the, the god, the split card, had a pretty average win rate for a rare for the average player. But for t players with the best win rates, it was like the fourth or fifth best card in the entire set. It's just a really complicated card to play. And so there's a lot to get out of that card. But the one game in hand win rate number didn't tell you the whole story there. It, it can vary based on your deck's strategy and its curve. Are you aggro? Are you mid-range? It can vary in more nuanced ways, right? Fearless Liberator in Call Time was a great example of this one where right out of the gates, I think people thought it was going to be a great card, right? It's 2-1, it makes more 2-1s, it's in Mana Sync, it does all sorts of things for you. But it's game in hand win rate sucked. And um, I spent some time, Ryan Sachs, by the way, who's an incredibly talented data scientist, dug into some of the data. And what we found was that the decks in call time, the red-white decks in call time that were really good were equipment decks. And Fearless Liberators sucked with equipment because if you spent the mana to equip in the turn, you couldn't actually use the boast ability to make the 2-1 in the same turn. And so those two things didn't interact with each other. And so the decks that it was good in were not the good red-white decks. And so it just kind of didn't work out that way. And there's all sorts of situations like this that you can use the data to glean more out of. If you're just blasting game in hand win rate, you're, you're missing the nuance. Okay, I have so many follow-up questions right now. <laughs> it, so... First and foremost, you know, you were talking about like game in hand win rate varying by archetype or other cards it's being played with or player skill. Are there ways to filter the data on 17 lands to drill down and see those things? So some of it you can do with the data that's available on 17 lands itself. And some of it requires, you know, significantly more complicated data techniques. And, and I'm not arguing that everyone needs to become a data scientist to go use this. But even with the data that's available you can really distinguish a, a variety of important things. For example, on the card rating tab, there are there's a game in hand win rate, but there's also an opening hand win rate. So even from the distinction between those two numbers, you can tell how important a card is to the early game in your deck versus the late game strategy. So an example of where you could maybe glean something from this would be looking at the difference between a card like Battlecry Goblin as a two-drop versus a card like Story Seeker. Both the cards are going to be pretty good 
when played on turn two, and that's going to be reflected in your opening hand win rate. But if you've ever played Battlecry Goblin on turn eight, when you've got eight mana available, you know that you can basically turn it into an overrun, and it's going to have enormous value for you at that particular point in the game. Um, And you can see that in the game-drawn win rate there. It's going to be incredibly high for Battlecry Goblin compared to a lot of other two drops. There's a lot of nuanced things you can do with the different win rates available right there. So, look, uh, Carl's going to be a good sport here, so this is going to sound like a rude question. Um, (laughs) I'm ready. But isn't it sort of clear that like a two-mana 2-2 lifelinker versus Battlecry Goblin that one of those is going to be way better. Like both of those are good on turn two and one of those is really good on turn 10 and the other one isn't. Like, I don't feel like I need you, me, Ben, don't need data to tell us that, right? Maybe, but sometimes you find out things that weren't the most intuitive to start off with. I'm going to keep piping examples because I think they're really interesting. I put out a little Twitter thread on Veteran Dungeoneer versus uh, Barrowin. And, and, you know, Veteran Dungeoneer is 3-4 is common, venture into the dungeon for four mana. And then Barrowin is two white blacks, 3-3, three, three, that if you've completed a dungeon you attack, you, you can get a, a creature back from your graveyard onto the battlefield. And inherently, Barrowin is a more powerful card, right? It can be a recurring source of getting creatures back from your graveyard. But Veteran Dungeoneer actually has a better game in hand win rate. And so you say, well, wh- why is that the case? And you drill down on it and you go over and you look at that opening hand win rate that I was talking about. And that is really where Veteran Dungeoneer stands out from Barrowin. It's got a four point or so higher win rate in your opening hand. If you've got it in your opening hand. And, and what I learned from it is how important four toughness is in AFR, because you've got all these three power creatures running around, right? You got uh, hordling ogres and, and all sorts of things like that that have three power and when you play that three they're three four on turn four it really helps to stabilize your board and it shows up directly in that stat i mean certainly obviously i know the difference between a three three and a three four but i would have always thought that that barrow card was very clearly the objectively better card because of its late game power but by studying the the data a little bit more allowed me to learn something about the format and then apply that to other situations down the road okay i have so many more follow-up questions first (laughs) question so diving into percentage points you said it had a four point higher we're talking about four percent higher win rate right what is a significant amount when you're looking at all that data you know like is it two percentage points where it starts to be significant and you say like, hey, this card's actually better than this other card when you're looking at things like games in hand win rate or in your opening hand win rate? How do you draw that distinction? Because the win rates are all fairly flat, right? They're they're fairly flat. And it really matters whether you're talking about commons or, or mythics, right? There's thousands and thousands upon games that commons are played. And there's a lot fewer in mythics. So you can get some more variation, especially early on in a format. But when you're talking about commons, you know, the top commons are usually somewhere in this six, low 60% win rate range. And then I would say the, the bottom like playable commons are closer to, you know, the low 50s. So you're really talking about only a 10 point range from top to bottom. You know, two points is a somewhat meaningful number. I also wouldn't say that just because one card's got a two point higher win rate than another card. Does it necessarily mean it is an objectively better card? No, but it is probably 
you start to get in that range where common's a meaningful number, where you got to be a little bit careful. Like I said, rares and mythics, you don't want to overinterpret, especially early in a format when there's just not enough reps with the data. Okay. And then zooming back in on your example of the Barrowin versus the Veteran Engineer, in a black-white deck that's actually built to venture well, do you still think that the 3-4 holds up as a better card than Barrowin? Or if you actually have, you know, the good uncommons and the good rares to help you turbo adventure that Barrowin can become a better card there. I absolutely think that Barrowin can become a better card. And, and I think that this is the perfect the perfect time to point out that these are going to be aggregated win rates, right? And so is Veteran Dungeoneer going to be a better card in every deck? Absolutely not. Um, if I'm a deck that's got, you know, seven, you hear something on the watch and can just mow down every single early attacker that my opponent's playing. And I'm, I'm exaggerating for purpose. Uh, yeah, you best believe that I'm going to take Barrowin, especially with a lot of other venture cards and and be able to have some sort of late game engine that that's going to take me to the finish line. Conversely, if I'm a deck that is lacking early drops and I need something to stabilize the board, Veteran Dungeoneer might be even a lot better than Barrowin in that particular, you know, much more than two to four points for your particular deck. So it's extremely important that you use these ideas as general information that can help inform your decisions. But if you're taking it as a monolithic number, you're both not doing it right. And you're also not giving yourself the chance to think through when is this outcome going to be different? What types of decks is this going to be different? Now, don't trick yourself. I mean, if, if a card's got a 10-point higher win rate than another card, there's going to be very, very few situations in which one card is better than the other. I'm sure there will be corner cases. But in general, yeah, the 10-point the higher card is going to, you know, Grim Bounty is generally going to be better than, uh, you know, Horde Robber or something like that in, in the vast, vast majority of decks. And, you know, Veteran Dungeoneer has a, you know, it's only a couple points different for Barrowin in black-white decks to begin with, so it's not really going to take a ton to to tilt that, but I would say if you kind of put the burden of proof on yourself in those situations and say, what is it about my deck that's going to make this card better in my deck than the other card? I think that's what you want to to push yourself on as you're, as you're drafting that card. Okay, zooming out big picture again, we've talked a lot about, you know, percentages and, you know, difference of two points or four points or whatever. The average win rate of a user of 17 lands is not stellar, like in my opinion, you know, compared to like Ethan or I drafting or something and not saying, you know, like I'm so awesome at magic or whatever. But why should we trust the data of, you know, people with a lower win rate overall, generally, like it's it's not that much above 50%. Is that true? It is in the mid 50s, typically, and it varies by set and it varies by so and that's premier draft too. when you go into traditional draft, it tends to be a little bit higher. Um, and I think that largely is because of pairing algorithm is, you know, forces premier drafters to play against players with similar rankings or ratings as them, right. But, uh, you know, mid 50s for a premier draft. And I think, you know, somewhere closer to 60 for traditional draft, if I'm not mistaken. And so why should we trust that? Is it just because of the sheer volume of data at this point? Yeah, the, the sheer volume. I mean, I think for especially for commons that are more straightforward cards, you know, Dragonfire, for example, is just going to be a card that is got a very similar value for a for a strong player versus a weak player. I mean, certainly 
there could be some nuances of, you know, should I draft Dragonfire versus this rare that I'm seeing or this strong uncommon? Yes. But there's not a ton of differential between a card like that. The, the example that I mentioned earlier of, of Alrin, God of the Cosmos, early on, that's the example of a type of card where maybe you, you look at the data and you say, there's probably a much larger range around a, a really complicated card like that for a strong player. And so I, I would say generally, yes, the sheer volume of commons, like it's just going to give you a pretty good idea of when, regardless of the player that's played this card, you know, Vampire Spawn's a good example in AFR. It's got a win rate that's something like three points better than the average win rate for a player. If I'm a player and I'm playing that card and I'm winning three points more of the time, it's not that complex of a card. It probably is going to translate to a lot of variety of skill values. And I think that just sheer volume for the commons, especially, and even the uncommons, is going to give you a pretty good indication. And I would also say that, like, it passes the smell test, too, in a lot of situations. And even with the rares and mythics, as you get deeper into a set, you know, I'm probably a person, if you look at the 17 lands leaderboard that has played, you know, some of these recent draft formats as much as anybody, uh, for better or for worse. And you start to play with these cards, right? In AFR, Nadar and, and Lolf are two of the top performing rares and mythics in the set. And if you are played to those cards, they are real, real good cards. And, and that's one of the things I think that's really important to do as well, is to just use the data to push yourself, right? If there's a particular card that you are playing and you are playing with that card and you're forming these opinions about it. And you say, man, I think this card is really good. I think this card is really underrated. You can go check the stats and kind of give yourself, you know, hey, yeah, these stats are pretty good in that card. Maybe what I was thinking about that card is in fact true. Or or conversely, you know, you're playing a card like Dire Wolf Prowler and, and, you know, maybe you're getting yourself into some situations where you play it and it's only a 2-2 and someone's swinging you back with a 3-3 or 4-4 next turn and it can't block that card until you've got more mana and it's like uh you know this card is a little bit awkward to play with not really sure if i should be playing these in my decks as much as i am you go check the stats and and sure enough they're not all that good for the card that can help you maybe say well maybe i'm gonna draft direwolf prowler a little bit less and and you can use it to reinforce some of the ideas that you're getting as you play the games Now, certainly, you're going to find some situations where the intuition doesn't match what the stats are. Maybe you found something that the average community hasn't played. Maybe, you know, you're playing a card like Fate's Reversal only in your Black White Venture decks, and it's been amazing for you. Uh, The stats overall kind of suck, but then you go drill into the Black White uh, decks, and sure enough, it's got a much higher win rate in that deck. You figured something out. There's a lot of ways that you can use it to to, to match what you're doing on the playing field, in the games, and what you're drafting um, to help reinforce some of the thoughts you have. Okay, I have so many more questions. So when you say you're going in to just check the stats on a card, is that you looking at games in hand win rate? Is that the equivalent of checking those stats to reinforce your intuition? Yeah, that's usually a starting point. But a lot of times I'll even do it mid-draft and use it to try to gain some insight into the particular deck that I might be drafting. So let's say that I'm starting down a path and I think I'm headed towards a black-white venture deck. I might go into that card ratings tab and there's a spot where you can choose what archetype you're looking at. So I'll go down to black-white and I might sort on the game in hands win rate to try to, for just for the commons maybe, to try to give myself a better idea of what are some of the stronger cards in this archetype. That, that would be a, a straightforward 
way to use it. Does sorting that or does looking at stuff like that take into account like the number of copies as well? Because like, you know, talk about something like Fates Reversal. Sure, one of in a black white deck, but like I'm not trying to load up on those in my venture decks. Does the data talk about that at all? The, The data that's available on the website doesn't get that detailed. So no, you couldn't figure that out. And is there also not a danger of, you know, if you have this theory about a card and then you're going into the data to try to check your theory, is there not also a danger of you manipulating the data in a way to just get confirmation bias to where you see what you want to see in the data? There's certainly the possibility of doing that. It's not like the data is so detailed such that you can try to manufacture a story that really isn't there. You know, I... I'm certainly open to examples of that because I think what you mentioned there is a general danger of organizing sorting data when you've got a particular predisposed notion in mind. It, that that's always a danger. That that's a you know we, we see that happen all the time in, in in news stories, in you know articles, in you know, even in my job. I have to be really careful about that, right? And that's always a danger. But you know the the data that's available on the website for the most part, like you're going to be looking at overall card win rates. You're going to be looking at archetype card win rates. Maybe you're going to be looking at color pair win rates. And I think for the most part, those are fairly high level, fairly straightforward stats that are going to lead you towards fact rather than confirmation bias myth, I would say. Okay, so I'm I'm average Joe Schmo. And I'm, you know, into the data thing, I'm drafting, I want to get better, like I'm on the wavelength of I want to improve as a magic player. So personally, I feel like there is useful data to be gleaned from, you know, looking at the stuff on 17 lands, but I think it probably, there's a barrier to entry there in my mind, you know, when I like I'm fairly smart. And when I've looked at that stuff, I just get completely overwhelmed. So to me, it seems like it would take a long time and a lot of consistent looking to figure that stuff out. And Personally, I'd rather just be drafting and playing Magic 100% of the time than going and looking at the data. So do you feel like the average person that goes on 17 lands and is looking at win rates for cards and other things like that is getting useful information and or actively helping themselves improve as a player? Because I would argue that that person that's going on there and doing that, if they just spent time you know, getting better at drafting or card evaluation or gameplay that they would be better off spending their time on those things than looking at the data. Because it feels like, you know, the old saying, you know, give a man a fish, he eats for a day, teach a man to fish, he eats for a lifetime. The data feels like giving a man a fish for a day. Whereas, you know, learning those fundamentals in drafting and navigating and pivoting out of colors in your seat or evaluating cards better, all that stuff seems like it would help you more than looking at the data. So first, the, the major objection that I have to your setup is that I don't know if you're Joe Schmo here. I would go with basic Ben. I think that might be a little bit better <laughs> Ooh, like in this that. particular situation. Um, basic Ben, I love it. <laughs> so now that we're past that, there, there's certainly somewhat of a barrier to entry, especially if you're not familiar with the data, right? You're going in there and there's GIH and GD and OH and there's number of games and there's all these different filters and it, it can certainly be overwhelming. I think, you know, a lot of the you know strong limited players that are also advocates for the data, I think have been pushing the average drafter towards game in hand win rate as a result of that. Because as I mentioned before, I do think it's probably the single best stat that's going to give you an indicator for how well a card is going to perform on average. While it's not the only thing, it's a really good starting point. And so if I were not a 17 lands user or not one that used it frequently, my suggestion for 
entering into that arena would be to just use it sporadically is don't change your approach all that much. Like you said, Ben, keep doing the things that you're doing, right? Keep drafting, keep trying to understand archetypes, keep absorbing, you know, content, keep reading articles from from strong players, keep listening to great podcasts like this one. But every now and then try to use it to check some of those ideas that you've been coming up with as you're you're playing the format. You can start with those game and hand win rates. Hey, I made a tier list and I think these cards are strong. How does that match the data? Or, you know, even just a single card. I think single card X is underrated. If I go and I sort on game and hand win rate, what does that tell me overall? Or, hey, I think card Y is much better in one archetype versus the other. And you can do the same thing as you were doing before. You just go pick one archetype for the other and you compare the win rates of those the cards in those particular decks. And is that going to be, is that number again in and of itself the end-all be-all? No. But again, it can help you maybe confirm or deny on a quicker basis some of the things you've been developing. You know, that, that doesn't take that long to do something like that. That can be done in, you know, a matter of minutes. You could take those learnings back to the draft tables and apply it to what you're seeing. Okay, I have so many more questions. I'm going to throw a curveball at you that's not in our show notes here because I think it's really interesting. So one of the things we do on Lords of Limited is early in the format, we come up with our list of top commons. And obviously, we're usually way off before we've played with the cards, but then we revise it the next couple of weeks after we've had a chance to play with the cards. And I do feel like those ordering of those top commons for each color tend to hold up for most of the format after we've played with them for a week or two. Do you feel like you could go on 17 lands sort by games in hand win rate for the commons and, you know, use those win percentages there to get your list of the top commons? And do you think that would be a more accurate list? I think that I could certainly come up with that list in a mere fraction of the time, right? It's it's literally just there in the data. You go and sort and you're going to get a, a, a list of what that looks like. I think you can get a list that is at a minimum close to as valuable, just just a pure list that's close to as valuable in in a fraction of the time. I think what that list is going to do without con- it, it, without context, without talking about the archetypes, without thinking about how they they, they play in different archetypes, I, I don't know how valuable that's really going to be. And, and that's where you see like different cards are better in different archetypes, right? And so early, especially early in the format, right? People are figuring these things out. So you've got people that are putting cards like Price of Loyalty into red-white decks that don't have sack outlets. Or, you know, maybe people are mixing up the venture payoffs with the dice payoffs with the the treasure payoffs and just creating these just ugly (laughs) decks that don't really have a particular theme. And so especially early on in the format, some of the more archetype specific cards are probably not going to have super strong game in hand win rates. As time goes on, as people start to figure these things out, it's going to get a lot cleaner, but I get pretty close. Right. So I guess my curiosity is I kind of have a mental list of what I think the best cards in AFR right now. If I log on to 17 lands, which I have not done just because I'm not particularly interested in looking at the data. If I log on to that and I filter, do you think that list matches up with the actual win rates of the cards? And if it doesn't, like, am I the one that's wrong? Do I need to be reevaluating based on that that data that I see there in 17 lands for those top commons? I would say it really depends. And I know that answer is just kind of a cop-out answer. And, oh, that's boring. <laughs> I mean, we're doing a podcast here. We're trying to entertain people. But it really, really depends, right? It depends if you've mastered a particular archetype. You know, I saw you talking about a, a really strong blue-green deck that you had 
um, in the, in the last episode that you did a lot of your, uh, you know, you, you, you make the play examples with that archetype, the blue green archetype really does not have a very high win rate overall. So if you figured out the particular cards that make that sing and, and I go and just sort purely on game in hand win rate, it's not likely that some of those blue green cards are going to be near the top because just in general, people have not done a lot of winning with that particular archetype but if you found the right formula or the right strategy maybe particular cards that 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 you're playing with or, or, or focusing more on are are just going to be you know better than what the stats absorb especially the aggregated stats that aren't sorted by archetype right 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 that's what i'm talking about more is the the aggregated stats that aren't sorted by archetype if i just want the top three red commons overall the top three black commons overall i'm kind of curious now i probably will go look it up after this but let's say just zooming out again for the sake of argument that there's relevant data on 17 lands which is probably true and i'm probably too pessimistic about it but i'm wary about how long goes into a format before that data is even relevant? Is there a waiting time, you know, after a format comes out where you feel like you have to wait before you actually get an actual picture of the data based on the number of, you know, results coming in from people playing? It makes me worried to look at week one or week two data and trust that. This is where it gets back to when you're talking about commons or mythics or rares. So the top mythics right now for the entirety of AFR have been played about the same amount as commons in the first two days of the format. So like literally two days into the format, Dragon's Fire has been played more than Lolf's been played the entirety of the format by 17 lands users. So you're going to get a relatively clear picture on the commons and especially the generically strong commons or the, or I would say the more monolithic commons early in the format, right? Your Dragon Fire, your, your Grim Bounties, cars like that and 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 you can actually even go double check if you wanted to you can go double check this on uh 17 lands because you can you can uh, pick particular date ranges that you look at the stats for and there was a bit of an issue this first season because the the log files weren't working so we didn't have 17 lands for the first week or so of the format but if you if you look at you know a week in say mid July versus a week now the top common win rates are pretty similar and in the top commons, like if you rank the top commons based on game of hand win rate, they're approximately the same commons. There's been a little shifting that's gone on. Um, you know, people have figured really figured out how to play, you know, cards like Price of Loyalty and, and the decks that it's supposed to go in. Um, and again, the more the more archetype specific cards have shifted a little bit. But for the most part, top commons are still the top commons as even in the first couple of days of the format. Okay, so price of loyalty ethan and i were talking about this before the show i don't feel like i need data to tell me to play price of loyalty with sacrifice outlets like the first time we played black red in the first week you know it was pretty obvious that black red was good and was one of the better decks and obviously you know active treason sacrifice outlet has been a tried and true limited recipe why do we need data to tell us that. Well, and I would also say that I, my guess is that Price of Loyalty is probably one of the top rated commons in the set, right? And But you and I, Ben, I don't think have it there. I, I'm curious what, what Carl's thought is. I think, you know, it sort of ranges folks' thoughts about a, a sack outlet like that or a, a steel card like that without sack outlets. Like, okay, yeah, Act of Treason can be an okay card as a game closer in some red decks, etc. You don't, you know, we had some pushback from folks in our discord when we talked about it a few weeks ago saying, hey, price of loyalty is like, you know, 
it's it's not a card that I'm interested in running unless I have whatever two sack outlets, three sack outlets. What's the ratio there? And there's a there's a lot of nuance there. I think that I would be curious, or I would I would hazard a guess that the 17 lands data doesn't sort of uncover. Yeah, welcome back to the episode, Ethan. Sorry, I've been <laughs> driving the bus here. <laughs> That's all right. I'm I'm enjoying uh, the the front row seat here. So for me, it wasn't necessarily a like when what i gained out of the price of loyalty topic that you're talking about here wasn't just that it was good right if you had a bunch of sack outlets playing price of loyalty agree that's a relatively straightforward thing what really got me was that it was the top rated common in the entire set now this is the perfect example of where you have to be careful with aggregated data right because Price of loyalty is only going to be played in decks with sack outlets for the most part when it, you know people get that concept. And, and so it's only going to be being played in decks that have a focused concept. Decks with a focused concept are going to tend to win more than decks without a focused concept. So th- there's a lot going on in that particular dynamic right there in the way that the, those results show up in the data. But it was the top performing common in the entire set. So for me, I would have thought, yeah, this is a good thing to do when you can get it going. And I never would have prioritized price of loyalty, though, over some of the other top commons. And I certainly still don't. Like early in a draft, I'm not taking price of loyalty over Dragon's Fire or Grim Bounty or anything like that. However, if I get to pack three and I've already got three, four, five sack outlets, there will be certain decks when I will take price of loyalty over, you know, Dragon's Fire or Grim Bounty. Not that that situation ever really comes up because those are cards are gone by then. But, but it is literally going to be the best card for your deck at that particular point. So it was the magnitude of just how strong that card was that helped me shift on the way that I was drafting red-black. And it also made me prioritize sack outlets earlier in the draft when I hadn't been doing that quite as much. Because, hey, you know, if I've got a pretty even decision between maybe a Sepulchre Ghoul or something like whatever, some other card earlier in the draft, I know that if I take that Sepulchre Ghoul early and I and I build up two or three sack outlets and price of loyalty wheels late like it has been, all of a sudden I'm going to be able to basically pick up a premium card from my deck late in this draft because I've already done the work to pick up sack outlets. So now I can prioritize sack outlets a little bit higher than I'd already been doing knowing just how strong that particular strategy is. So I feel like this is going to be dangerously circling back to a point made previously. But, you know, I want to say that, you know, I would trust someone like you, Carl, or like Ryan or other, you know, data scientists, analytics people out there to parse through the data for useful stuff. You know, what I'm getting from you for from each of these responses is things like, well, it depends, which, you know, magic is always a thing where people ask a question and they want a binary answer. And it's never you can basically never give that. And I'm getting the sense with this, too, that there's always like a bigger picture. There's always more nuance to it. But I worry about the basic bends of the world. I just feel like on average, people are not that this data out there is just being taken at face value. And I'm sure that as you sort of said, like, you know, obviously that can be a dangerous tool and it's not giving people the big picture and it's you want a much more holistic approach but how do you get people to dig deeper or you know look for the rest of the ingredients that go in the recipe of getting better at limited because i just feel like with the presence of the data there's a lot of like full stop this is the thing and i don't as someone who's a a content creator who gets frustrated with that i don't know how to 
push back or engage with it because I, you know, my sort of knee jerk reaction is just like, okay, well, that's not my experience. And I play magic all day, every day. And so I feel like I (laughs) know better or whatever, you know, and like, I I don't want to have that attitude, but I want to be able to engage with folks in a way that says like, hey, you're using this data. I want you to be, you know, making sure that that's not the only piece of the puzzle you're looking at. One of the things that I would love to do is dig further in to just how much variability there is around these aggregated stats. Take a couple of cards that have win rate of, say, 60%. Let's just pick a number. You could very easily get situations in where that card is going to be a 50% win rate or a 70% win rate, depending on the deck that it's in, or depending on the cards that it's played with, or the archetype, or just all sorts of other variables. And we don't exactly have... We've got inklings into what the variability of these win rates could be depending on the context of the deck. We don't have really strong kind of definitive answers on that. That would be something that I would love to dig further in on and and just blast out there and say, guys, just because, you know, this card is one point higher game in hand win rate than another card does not mean it's always going to be better for you. And we have actual mathematical factual proof but that is the case. Look at how much variability there is in this particular data. I also think that one of the things that I would like to do, you know, I don't, I'm, I have a full-time job and I don't consider myself a content creator per se, but I've got my little niche of magic content creation. And I think one of the things that I would like to do with this little small platform that I've got over time is just to keep helping people understand how to better use the data and how to better not use the data. You know, I think the things that I would tell the basic bends of the world, start with game and hand win rate for aggregated, also look at archetype game and hand win rate, and challenge everything. Don't just take the number at face value. If one card's got a higher win rate than another, the burden of proof is certainly on the play and the experience to prove that maybe one card is going to be better in certain situations than another, but keep challenging yourself. Never settle on just, I'm always going to play this card because that is what the aggregated win rate tells me. But this is my biggest problem is that I feel like the people who are engaging with the data and and I, I, I'm not trying to put all these questions on you, Carl. You are just unfortunately the person that is here with us <laughs> to answer answer for the sins of the data interpreters out there. But no, that that the um the data is, I think, attractive to people who want the quick answers. And who want to be right. And who want to be right. And so they want to go, okay, well, this has a higher, this has a half a percent higher win rate than this other card, so it must be better. And that's the the truth. And I I know that you're not endorsing that, but and so I I feel like perhaps the 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 problem that Ben and I have is not with the data existing, but with the way that people engage with it. And not again, not not that you have to answer for that, but that I don't know how to solve that problem. I don't feel like the people who want to engage with it are the people who want to be like, I'm going to dig super deep and challenge everything. I can't, that, that feels like that's a tough ask for these people who are like, well, I only get to draft a few times. I want to maximize my win rate. And I just want to want the quick and dirty answers. And I feel like if, if magic were that easy, limited resources wouldn't have be around for 11 years. We wouldn't have stuff to talk about each and every week, you know? Right. And it feels like that's happening more and more because data is becoming more and more cool, or it's more of a fad to cite data when you're talking about why you think a card is good. And I, I have not 
liked it much at all for a lot of the reasons that Ethan said. It's that people want to be right and they want to use the data as a weapon to say, hey, I'm right. So what you're telling me is there are people on the internet that (laughs) think they're right about something (laughs) and they want to prove that to you. Can't you fix that, Carl? Yeah, I want you to fix it. That's why you're here. I mean, I think in in 2021, <laughs> in the presence of the amount of information that is available to all of us, I mean, this is a problem that is super not specific to magic data, right? It's a problem yeah. that exists literally everywhere and everything. And so, you know, I don't know if you can solve that problem holistically. I think it's just going to be there. And I don't think that that person in your chat is ever necessarily going to go away. However, the more we can educate people on how to use this data, uh, the more likely it is that the rest of Twitch chat is going to jump the heck over that person and tell them you're, you're being too monolithic. You're, you're not considering other factors. You're not thinking about this or, or whatever it is in that particular situation. You know, have you thought about this? Have you challenged yourself on this? Blah, 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 blah. Uh, you know, and I think that, you know, that's going to take time. That's not going to happen overnight. It, there's going to be elements of it that never happened, but, uh, I would say that that's how you you slowly start to to work through that problem. So zooming back in on price of loyalty, you know, you were talking about how, you know, it helped evolve your evaluation of the card, that sort of thing. If then this data is available to everyone and everyone's realizing how good price of loyalty is, how good black red is, then everyone's competing for that deck. And it might be right sometimes to not draft it then. Yeah. So again, like I'm going to go back to the data and I'm going to just kind of like rank some things like you know, draft skill, gameplay, card evaluation, I would put all of those as more important tools than looking at the data or looking at games and hand win rate, because you can know that price of loyalty is a great card. You can know that black red's great, but that still doesn't teach you when it's correct to pivot off of it and into this other archetype because other people are competing for black red or that sort of thing. So where do you think the ability to, you know, go into 17 lands and look at these games in hand win rate or whatever, like fits into your skill set as a magic player. And how important is it? Medium important for me. And I would say that until I actually play the cards, I don't get all that much out of just looking at the 17 lands until I've had experience with those. So I wouldn't advocate it as this thing you do without pairing it with game experience. And I would say I can give you a little bit of story about my journey through AFR. You know, I started off in the format and was winning at a regular clip to what I usually do. And then I fell into this period where I had a 30 draft streak where I was winning 51% of the time, which would be a, a, a very, very low number for, for me personally, about as low as I've ever done. And I was struggling to, to figure it out and, and get myself out of it. And I was talking to Eric Klug, actually, about his experience because his numbers, there's the leaderboard on 17 lands, his his stats were fantastic. And I was just talking to him about it. And it's like, well, what are you what are you doing? He's like, well, basically, I'm forcing Rakdos. And he and he shared with me a couple of you know particular experiences that he had and and some picks that he was making in certain spots. And I said, okay, well, let, me, let me take that and let me try to process that and start doing it. So so that, so far, we are, we're not into the data at all, but it's a tip from a friend. Okay, so I started trying to do that and started winning a little bit red-black. And then I said, all right, I'm going to take red-black as an archetype. If I'm going to be almost trying to force this for a little while to work on a particular strategy for me, 
I'm going to go study this in 17 lands. I'm going to drill down on the red-black archetype. I'm going to try to figure out what cards are best. I'm going to try to figure out, you know, what strategies are best, what's available. And, and I'm going to really try to absorb this particular archetype. And I looked at the price of loyalty situation. And I looked at cards like Vampire Spawn as being stronger than I had originally thought. And I looked at, you know, I tried to figure out which particular rares were good in this archetype versus not and which uncommons warlock class was a card that really performed extremely well in this archetype that i started drafting higher and so i I basically focused in on this one particular microcosm and all of a sudden my win rate went from 51 percent for these 30 drafts and my next 80 drafts i was at 67 percent, which is near the top of the the premier draft ratings for for 17 lands now was that a data only thing Absolutely not. But was I able to glean particular elements of what what made the red-black archetype sing that I paired with a suggestion from a a really strong player and and put it all together to find a way to claw myself back up? Yes. Would I have gotten there without the 17 lands data in and of itself? Probably still would have gotten there, but I might have taken me long to refine on the red-black archetype. And, and may, maybe I went at 64% instead of 66% over that. I, I have no idea. So I think it's a piece that helps me find the path faster than if I didn't have it. But again, without the play skill to balance it and without the game situations, I, I don't know. I, I personally can't absorb without pairing those two things together. Okay, so looking at that data, you know, is helping you. And that's a super interesting story there. So what sort of data do you think is best from 17 lands? Do you feel like individual card data or bigger picture data like color pair win rates? Like as a as a not data truther, or like somebody that doesn't dive into the data hardly ever, I would be much more likely to trust bigger picture things like, you know, red black has the best win rate. It's probably the best deck. Like that stuff rings way more true to me than all of the individual card data. I I think you can take the 80-20 rule for this one. And what I mean by that is you can probably get about 80% of the value for 20% of the effort. Rakdos is the best deck. You can find that in literally 10 seconds on this website, and it's going to provide you a lot of guidance on you know, where to go, right? Grim, Bounty, and Dragon's Fire are really good commons. I should draft them. Like, I mean, most good drafters are going to know that to begin with, but you could also find that in 10 seconds. Dire Wolf Prowler is a medium to mediocre card. That's another thing you could find in 10 seconds, and you could apply that to a draft tomorrow. So some of those main key points, the price of loyalty would be another perfect example of that. Some of those main key points, I think you can get to without a ton of searching or looking on on the site. You know, another good example might be uh, Behold the Multiverse versus Seral's Packmate in Kaldheim. There was a ton of debate on, on those two cards early on. And, you know, as the format evolved, we saw that Seral's Packmate was just very clearly a, a better card. And... You know, the data helps you get there maybe faster than what the play experience, uh, at least for me personally and for a lot of people, maybe some, you know, maybe some folks were all over this, uh, you know, early on. But but the data really helped me refine in that point, I think, faster than I would have gotten to it if we didn't have the data to support that. So how early in a format can you be looking and just see what the best color pairs are? Like, do you think four days into a format you can just filter the color pairs and look at that. And that's probably pretty close to the order of those color pairs. Because I do remember in Strixhaven that early on, Silver Quill was the best performing deck. And I think that's the way 
it shook out. Is that going to be accurate fairly early on? It gets pretty close. Um, I'm literally, as we speak, I'm going into the format color ratings and I filtered on the week of July 11th to July 17th. And in that particular week, Rakdos had a win rate that was four points higher than the average uh, two color pair during that time, which I think is actually more than it ended up being by the end of the format. By the end of the format, like right now, we're sitting at three points higher than the average two color deck. So that truth showed up within a week of this particular format. I think this, like, like you said, and I don't know the exact dates for, for Strixhaven, but I, I think you're right that the, the Silver Quill took a little bit of time to evolve, but but still showed up relatively early that it was a very strong color pair. So I think big things like that are going to tend to show up. Now, if there are particular things that people figure out you know, later in a format, like the spider spawning deck back in Innistrada, you know, I don't know um, if folks will remember that deck, but it was it was a strategy that, uh, you know, self mill and using spider spawning that just ended up being like a lot better than other strategies. And there were a few people that figured out that deck early on and were crushing the format. You know, if we had data back then, would we have found that deck a lot faster than if we didn't have data? I don't know. It took a long time to figure, I think, really figure out how strong that deck was back then. The Clear the Mind deck, right? And Ravnica Allegiances would be another example of that. So some things maybe take some time to evolve, but the black-red being good as a basic truth of the format, we got that fast. Sure, right. And I think even that Clear the Mind deck, I think Ethan and I were figuring that out a week or two into the format. And I feel like we were sort of two of the people that popularized that deck early on in the format. But just zooming out big picture again to those color pair things, I just can't ever imagine, and then maybe this is a hole in my game, but I can't ever imagine wanting to go on 17 lands and filtering by archetypes and seeing that ranking. And even if it's right, I don't think I would want to know because that feels like looking at the answers to the test to me in some ways. Like, And maybe this is just how I engage with magic, but my enjoyment of magic comes from, okay, I'm presented with this puzzle. I want to solve that puzzle. I don't want 17 lands to hand the answer to me. And maybe that's just me being grouchy and old and not <laughs> with the times. I don't know. I could make the argument that that actually is a better strategy for your success too, potentially, right? If your mind is firing on all cylinders when you've got this super interesting puzzle to solve, maybe that is the right approach for you. And maybe if you want to use 17 lands, maybe you decide to use it, but you wait till further down in the format to absorb that information and try to maybe discern whether all the things you've learned about the format from just, you know, the experience and all the things you talk about are true. So that very well could actually be an optimal strategy for Ben. You know, for me, I I mean, I, I, literally do analytics for a living. I love it. It's, you know, something that I extremely enjoy. Playing magic is something I extremely enjoy. Being able to pair those together, that makes my brain fire on all cylinders. So, I, you know, I think you do have to know yourself and you know how this data is going to work right for you or if you want to use it. And, you know, it may not be, I mean, you're an incredibly talented, you are both incredibly talented magic players. And so I would say in general, the aggregated data is going to have less to offer you than the average person. The average person might have a ton to gain out of, of you know, the exploration of the data. You might have some to gain. And honestly, the things that you, you know, strong players have to gain are probably more in the nooks and crannies rather than in the aggregated data. Like the, the veteran Dungeoneer example that I gave earlier in the episode, that was a, a nook and cranny that was very valuable for me personally. That type of thing might be something that is 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 valuable for a 
for a player of your caliber. Whereas, hey, look, Grim Loyalty is good, duh, is probably not going to provide you a lot. Right. So final question for me, and I think I kind of already know your answer to this. Is it a hole in my personal Magic the Gathering game that I don't use 17 lands in the ways that you're describing? I would say it depends what your goal is. Oh, man, I wanted you to lambast me. I wanted you to flay me open. And, and, and I, well, I will. If, <laughs> if your goal is to maximize your win rate, if your goal, let's say, you know, I, I know there's a lot of conversation about OP, but if your goal was to beat the best competition as as soundly and thoroughly as you possibly could, I think not using the data or not paying attention to it, you are not gleaning as much information about the format as you possibly can glean. You're not shoring up the nooks and crannies. Maybe there's a particular pet card that you're playing in otherwise super strong decks, and maybe that card's actually not that great, but you haven't maybe parsed that one out from everything else. I, I don't I know. I feel so seen right now, and I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> so it is, again, do I think that by not looking at the data, you're giving up like massive equity? No, I don't. You're a really strong player that's going to be able to figure out the format and and, and absorb it. And, and honestly, to a certain extent, when the data is shaping other strong players' opinions of the format and you're reading about what other strong players are doing, you might get some of that via osmosis anyway. But, but if you're trying to grind every single tenth of a percentage point and you're not using 17 lands in some form or fashion, I do think you're probably giving up some equity here or there. Ethan? Anything else from you? I just feel like my the the real summary of this episode is that I have my problem is with the internet. It's not with <laughs> the data. <laughs> I just need to get away from the internet. No, this is great. And I like you know before even even Carl said it, I I was and before you even asked Carl that final pointed question, I I was just thinking like the poker player in me is feeling like I'm leaving some equity on the table. You know, I'm leaving a little bit. Of value on the table. And, you know, I, I feel similar to you, Ben, about like, part of what I want to do in terms of bringing information to the podcast is have the experience myself, you know, and so I don't want to deny myself the thing you're talking about of like, I don't want to deny myself solving the puzzle or like, you know, challenging myself to solve the puzzle. But I do also feel like, you know, if, if we get a, if we could get a jump, if we were on, you know, day four, look, Rakdos is the best deck by far, you know, it's four percentage points higher than the next color pair. You know, that's some exploitable stuff that we should be aware of. Yes, for sure. And I would say, you know, Carl, you're talking about us, you know, gaining more from going into the weeds of the data a little bit more. I would also say on the flip side, just as a word of caution or a word of warning to the basic bends out there, I would say there's a lot more equity to be gained in card evaluation, draft skills, gameplay than there might be in data. I, I think you should not be thinking data is the answer to me getting better at Magic the Gathering because I don't think that's necessarily true until you get to a certain level. And then I think it's probably pretty helpful, you know, like Carl said or Ethan said, if you're trying to scoop up maximum equity. I will not disagree with that at all. I think that I probably gained a point or two, maybe three tops of equity when I was the number one limited uh, ranked player in March. Was that the difference between me being number one and not number one? Probably. But was it the difference between me being a generally strong player and a bad player? Not at all. Boom, you heard it here. Data's worthless, folks. <laughs> well, this was unfortunately a much more tempered and civil conversation than I think uh, maybe we were hoping for. Can I rant about one thing real quick before we finish? 
Yes. So you mentioned that you're a poker player. Yeah. And and I think there's a really, really strong analogy to data and magic and data and poker here. You know, No Limit Texas Hold'em is now a game where computers, especially I know for like, you know, games with, with fewer players, computers can more or less play better than like 99.9% of players. And, you know, the best players are using the the computer simulations to hone little tiny edges here and there exactly like you said Ethan but poker in and of itself is a much more finite game than magic if you look at the number of permutations the number of game situations that you can encounter in magic it's just it's so much bigger than poker is so for the people out there that are saying 17 lands is going to make you know limited it's going to make draft a solve format it is not we are not even remotely close to data turning limited into a boring game. We're not close to it turning into a monolithic game. We're not close to it being solved. We are just not remotely close, nor do I think we're ever going to get there with the complexity in the game of Magic the Gathering, especially the game of Draft. So if you are one of the people that are thinking that or worried that it's going to ruin our game, data in and of itself is not ruining our game. It's not solving the format. It's not going to make it a straightforward thing that we can just study computer simulations. It's just not getting there. Is it mean that you're more likely to see someone come into Ben or Ethan's Twitch chat and say some dumb stuff? Yeah, it might be. I mean, everything that changes in magic is like the worst thing at the time, right? Oh, le- <laughs> leagues are going to ruin leagues on MTGO. That ruins limited. Oh, best of one. That ruins limited data. That ruins limited. You can't do it. It's a great game. Limited's too great to be ruined. The best game. Love it. Carl, thank you so, so much for lending your time and your expertise for the past hour and change. Um, this was a, a, I, you know, I was basically just a fly on the wall here, but this was a very, very awesome conversation to be a part of. And I, I'm sure our listeners are going to appreciate it as well. An absolute honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much. If folks want to find you on the internet, you, you know, you have a fantastic uh, thread posted to your uh, Twitter feed that I went through again, just before we started recording. Um, wh- where can people find you out on the internet? I am am at Carl. Good to see you one on magic Twitter uh, reference to the Billy Madison movie there. And, and you'll see me show up as two duck cubed on Twitter. And you're also streaming sometimes. Yeah, I am streaming right now. I, I've had all sorts of internet issues. I'd like to get back to it. Uh, it's very occasional right now. Hopefully we'll fix those internet issues and get back to streaming more regularly and, and, and two duck cubed on Twitch. Awesome. All right. Great place to wrap us up. Thank you as always to salty pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. Thanks so much to channelfireball.com for sponsoring this podcast. If you're heading over to CFB for any and all purchases, signing up for CFB pro, please use the code LOL when you check out to let them know we sent you there. You can find us streaming as well. I'm at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware. Ben is at twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome. Mr. Spelled out. We're both under those same usernames on Twitter and you can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks everybody. See you later. 